morning again. As Todd said, my name is Timothy, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's an honor and privilege to bring to you God's Word. We're going to be continuing this morning in our series in Galatians entitled Centered Faith. Uh, and this morning we're going to be reading in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. If you're able, uh, as we do each week, out of reverence for God's Word, would you stand? I'm going to read w- with you Second uh, Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. Paul says, Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Your word is powerful and it's true, it's sufficient. It's all that we need, God. Help us to lean into your truth this morning, that you might lead us, that we might encounter you, the living God, that we would leave here this morning transformed because we've been with you. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As some of you may know, I grew up uh, in the Deep South, in Birmingham, Alabama, in a very tight-knit Christian community. Uh, And this community that I grew up in sought to embrace a Christian worldview. Uh, what, What that means is that their faith was not just something reserved for Sundays, but instead served to shape their whole life. 
Uh, and one of the most vivid memories I have of this worldview at work was when this community decided to boycott Levi's blue jeans. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you now, but in the early 90s, this was life-threatening for a middle schooler who was trying to make it in the cool crowd. To take away my Levi's was a big deal. And the boycott, headed up by Dr. James Dobson, in many ways the resident apostle for this community, was started because Levi's decided to pull its support uh, from the Boy Scouts of America. And they did this because the Boy Scouts were continuing to adhere to Lord Baden-Powell, who's the founder of the scouting movement, continuing to adhere to Lord Powell's 3G policy. That is to say that everyone is welcome provided they are not gay, godless, or a girl. I'm not making this stuff up. This is true. So a number of Christians in Birmingham, Alabama, and beyond stopped, started, they stopped buying Levi's jeans. At the same time, the vast majority of these Christian families that made up this tight-knit community were members of one of the two prominent country clubs in Birmingham, both of which, I might add, at this time, barred people of color and women from membership. So try to wrap your minds around this. This Christian community refuses to wear Levi's because they pulled their charitable giving from the Boy Scouts, but willingly throws thousands and thousands of dollars at these country clubs, which unashamedly stand for white male supremacy. Which lends the question, I wonder if the boycott was rightly placed. The circumstances of our text are eerily similar to what was happening in my childhood in Birmingham, Alabama. There's a boycott taking place inside the Christian community. And it's not being proliferated by Dr. Dobson, but by the Apostle Peter. And Peter was boycotting table fellowship with Christians who refused to be circumcised. No more supper clubs with these ruffians. And pretty soon, Peter's boycott caught on. All the Jewish Christians join in. And so our text begins with Paul confronting Peter, asking him the question, I wonder if your boycott is rightly placed. And the charge that he brings in verse 14 is that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And what Peter is, I mean, excuse me, what Paul is doing here is he is using this boycott, this example to drive the application of all of what Paul has been saying in the first two chapters of Galatians, in the first two chapters of this letter. He's highlighting the consequences of a faith that is not centered. He's saying if we don't have a centered faith, we won't be able to keep in step. And even the slightest deviation from the truth of the gospel can be devastating. Let me give you an example. I, have a, I had a friend in college uh, whose dad owned a 31-foot fishing boat, saltwater fishing boat. And for some reason, my friend's dad would let us take the boat out for the weekend. And what I learned not growing up saltwater fishing is that the big fish 
They live about 80 miles offshore, way, way out there. And so what we would do is we'd pile on this boat on Friday night, we'd set the GPS coordinates, and then we would go to sleep. I think somebody was supposed to stay up and watch. I don't know if that happened or not. I was sleeping. But the boat would drive itself 80 miles offshores. And so it was very, very important that the GPS was right, that it was honed in, that it was aligned well, because if the GPS was off just a fraction, we would have woke up the next morning and we would have been miles from where we were supposed to be. It might have even been deadly. There are all kinds of oil rigs and buoys out there that we could have crashed into. And so as you can see, just a slight miscalculation would have massive consequences. In the same manner, Paul is pleading with the the Galatians to set their trajectory on the true gospel so that they can make sure that they're walking in step. Because if they're not centered, they're destined to get way off course, which is what we see here in chapter 2. So as we dive into our text this morning, I want to begin in the second part of our text, in verse 15. And here we have this beautiful summary of what a centered faith should look like. What our faith is to be centered on. And then, as we walk through that and we see what Paul is saying, I want to then look back at verse 11 and see the specifics of Peter's missteps. How did he get off of this centered gospel? And lastly, we'll look at how we, like Peter, can get about out of step with the gospel. So let's begin now in verse 15, this beautiful summary of what a centered faith looks like. I want you to walk with me through the text. In verse 15, the text begins with this very important bit of data. Paul says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We need to recognize very simply, that the church in Galatia is made up of entirely Jewish Christians. Super homogenous. More on that later, but it's very important that we recognize who Paul is talking to. And so he begins by reminding these Jewish Christians who are so proud of their Jewish heritage that it's not their heritage that makes them right before God. It's not their ethnicity, their insidership, if you will, Their privileged privileged status is not what saves them. No, verse 16, he says, it is faith alone in Christ alone that justifies. It's that which unites us to God. And then these words in the middle of verse 16, they're so important. Paul says, we also, we also. I don't know if any of you watch the show Blackish, but there is this episode, it's a really funny show, but there's this episode where the Johnson family is going to Disney World, and Andre, the father, has purchased VIP status for the whole family, and this, this is for real. You can actually do this, but what this means is they have a tour guide, and they get to skip to the front of the line for every single ride, and as the show begins, you can see that this family is really embarrassed initially about this VIP status. They They're kind of apologizing as they walk by. They don't want to look at the people in line, in the eye, because they don't feel like it's appropriate for them to have this status. And then as the show goes on, they kind of get more and more used to and comfortable in their entitlement. 
and all of a sudden they're flaunting their status. You see them walking down the line and they're saying, don't hate VIP coming through, or it's okay to feel jealous. You know, they have all of a sudden decided that we deserve this status and privilege. And then the, the episode turns and tragedy strikes and the time limit runs out on their VIP status. And all of the privileges are gone. And, and the result is the kids lose it. They can't handle it. They can't handle being normal again. They can't handle having to wait in line like everybody else. And that's exactly what we see here. The Jews, God's chosen people, have gotten so comfortable with their VIP status with God. And therefore, they're blinded to the truth of the gospel. And Paul is saying, wake up. We also have to wait in line. We need faith just like the regular old Gentiles. He's saying, in Christ, we ain't VIP anymore. And the Jews are wrestling with, struggling to understand this. And then he moves to verse 16. And this is certainly the most challenging, 17, 18 part of our text. And without getting too bogged down in the minutia, what I want you to see here is that Paul is now engaging the anticipated rebuttal of the Galatians. Paul knows what the Galatians are thinking, how they would respond to what he's saying. The Galatians are thinking, Paul, if it's all about faith and not works, then isn't this going to produce rampant sinning? Isn't everybody just going to go buck wild because it doesn't matter what we do? And verse 18 is Paul's preemptive response to that thought. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's point here is, if I rebuild the sinful lifestyle that Christ died to pay the penalty for, if I take this gift of salvation and just toss it aside, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. Then I prove that I didn't understand the gospel in the first place. Or maybe even further simplified, Paul is saying, if you see God's grace as a license to sin, then you haven't actually experienced the grace of God. If you're asking this question, then you don't really know the God of grace. And then verse 19, Paul shifts and he begins to describe his own experience of God's grace, of how he has tasted the goodness of God's grace in his own life. He says, through the, through the law, I died to the law. Paul is saying the law... God's righteous requirements killed me because I couldn't keep them. I tried and I couldn't do it. I couldn't love God with all my heart, excuse me, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I couldn't love my neighbor as myself. I kept coming up short. And the law killed me by showing me that it couldn't save me. That it was not my means to salvation. But now I live to God. The most famous verse in this section, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what theologians refer to as substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that because I have failed to obey the law, I deserve to be punished. But my punishment was put on Christ. 
It was as if I was on the cross with him in Christ, crucified with Christ. And not only that, but Christ's perfect life was gifted to me as well. We are clothed now in Christ's righteousness. And when God sees us, he sees Christ's perfect obedience as if it was ours. That's what it means to be in Christ. Christ took my sin on himself on the cross, and in turn, he gives me his righteousness. That's the fundamental truth for us as Christians. As Tim Keller says, verse 20 is a triumphant reminder that though we ourselves are sinners in Christ, we are righteous. And then the rest of verse 20, as we continue to walk through, is the answer to the question, now what? So then, how shall we live? Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm I'm rooted in, Paul says, I'm centered on the fact that faith in Christ alone is what saves me. It is my saving grace. That faith in Christ only. And then he concludes, verse 21, Paul is saying it's all or nothing. For if righteousness were through the raw, then Christ died for no purpose. Either you are saved entirely by grace and the cross means everything, or you are saved by your own merit and the cross is gratuitous. Keller, I think this is helpful, he likens this to a house fire. Imagine that your house is burning down and your whole family has escaped And then I said to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran inside your burning house and I died. You would not say, wow, he loves me. You'd say, he's crazy. That's ridiculous. What a waste. What an ugly waste. But now instead imagine that one of your children was still inside. And I said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran inside and I saved your child, but I died in the process. Then you would say, wow, he truly loved me, gave himself for me. If we could save ourselves, the whole foundation of Christianity, the cross, is pointless. It's a gratuitous waste. But if we can't save ourselves, if we need a Savior, the cross is everything. It's everything. This truth that Paul lays out for us here, verses 15 through 21, It's the foundation. It's what we must be centered on. It's that which sets our whole life's trajectory, and it's that which Peter got off of. So let's look now back at verse 11 and examine how Peter got out of step with this centered faith. As I mentioned earlier, the charge that Paul brings is that he has ceased table fellowship with Gentile Christians, with those who refused to be circumcised. And Paul's charge is, verse 14, he's not in step with the gospel. But what's going on here? Why did Peter stop eating with the Gentiles? In order for us to understand, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated and messy than at first glance. We have to understand a little bit about the clean laws in the Old Testament. We see these laws primarily in the book of Leviticus. And, and these laws stated that you... You couldn't enter God's temple. You couldn't come into God's presence if you had eaten certain food or foods or touched certain things. If you had touched something that was dead or, or you had 
been around someone who had a certain disease. All these laws were set forth that kept people away from God's presence. And the point here is that God was reminding the people that they needed to be cleansed before coming before Him. That was the idea behind these laws. It's an important thing for us to understand that we sinful people can't come before a holy God unless we are made clean. However, when Christ comes, as we see in verses 15 through 21, He does away with the clean laws. Because by His blood, all who have faith are made clean. And Peter, of all people, he should have known this. Because prior to this story, we see in Acts 10 that God went out of His way to communicate this truth to Peter. I don't know if you remember Acts 10, but what happens is Peter has this dream, a vision. And this sheet comes down, and in the sheet are all these unclean animals, pigs, shellfish, all these things that the Jewish people were not supposed to eat. And what does God say? God says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. He says, eat these unclean foods. And what he's telling Peter in that, he said, he said the clean laws, they're over. They're done away with. Christ has dealt with the uncleanliness. In Christ now, in faith, we all can come. We all have access. And Peter gets it. We know he gets it because he leaves from this vision and he goes to the house of Cornelius the Gentile and he hangs out with his whole family. They have dinner. And then the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his whole family and Peter baptizes all of them. And then Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, acceptable to God. Amen. Go Peter. You got it. And then Galatians 2, something happened, and Peter got out of step. Look again at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. There it is. (laughs) That and this, yeah. That's the pothole that screwed up Peter's alignment, the fear of man. Not just any man, no, we're talking about James. And what we know from church history is that James was the big dog in the church in Jerusalem. And the thought of upsetting someone as important as James was too much for Peter. And so this fear motivates him to make a slight adjustment. We can probably imagine that Peter rationalizes his actions, you know, We used to not eat with the Gentiles. You know, I remember when that was the case. And, you know, maybe we weren't supposed to stop doing that. Maybe James is up to something here. The problem is, the reason why Paul is so upset is because when we make these little adjustments, when we deviate from the center of the gospel, even just a little bit, we weaken the whole structure and it will fall. It will fall. A few weeks ago, my wife Stacy and I went to the Ground Zero Memorial in New York, the site of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And one of the things that so surprised me was how brilliant the terrorist plot was. I had no idea. I'd never really studied this before. But the terrorists were so well informed about exactly how fast they needed to be flying and at what angle to hit the Twin Towers in order to weaken those support beams just enough. And they knew if they could take out a large enough section of the frame, the whole building would collapse. 
Paul is up in arms because he knows that Peter's slight error will weaken the structure and will cause the whole gospel to collapse. The whole gospel is at stake. He knows there cannot be a gospel that excludes people based on race or ethnicity or gender or socioeconomic status, political party, denomination, social cause. You fill the blank. Peter knows that a gospel of exclusion is no gospel at all. There's so much at stake here, which is why it's so important that we, Christ Central Church, fight to be centered on the true gospel. Otherwise, this whole thing called Christianity will collapse. And the truth is, we are so like Peter. Or, or maybe it's just me. I don't know. I'm like Peter. I so often live for the approval of others. I'm convinced there's no greater motivation for walking out of step with the gospel than people-pleasing. Especially when it comes to someone important, someone who has status or wealth or power over you. It's amazing the compromises that we will make to impress a boss or a cute boy or a cute girl or a respected leader or a parent or a successful pastor or a renowned seminary professor, if I'm confessing with you. And it's not that we throw out the gospel entirely, but we enter into that gray area, right? When we adjust the coordinates just a hair. But as we've seen in this story, that slight recalibration has the potential to tear down the purity of the gospel itself. So dangerous. I think what's ironic when we look at Peter and ourselves is that when we bow to the approval of man, we destroy that which we need the most. Look at Peter's life. He's afraid that James is going to abandon him. He's groping for significance and worth. If only James will approve of me, then I will matter. And he's looking to James when he's losing that which has already been gifted to him in Christ. By looking to James, he is robbed of the free gifts that we have in the gospel. He could rest in the fact that the God of the universe says, I approve of you. He could have opposed James to his face. He could have stayed in center, in line with the gospel. I want to share with you how this has hit home for me as of late. Uh, many of my children's closest friends are black. And that's because it just so happens that we live in a neighborhood that's almost entirely African-American. Um, we've been blessed with a wonderful home and a wonderful neighborhood. And there have been people who've challenged me on this, saying that it's not right or wise or prudent. And in the, in the moment, my desire to people-please will raise its ugly head. And I think about adjusting my stance just a little. But the place that I find strength is by coming back to verses 15 to 21, remembering that in Christ I'm a beloved child of the King. And from that place I find the freedom from approval seeking. And in that freedom I can rest in the truth of the gospel. 
and I can graciously but boldly walk in defiance of that wrong thinking because I'm secure in Christ and I stand in the truth of the gospel and I refuse to budge. Brothers and sisters, walking in step with the gospel is not easy. We live in a society that stands in opposition to the truth of the gospel. And to walk in step is to invite oppression. And the whole, only hope that we have to do this well is to be rooted in the truth of the gospel because then we will know how to walk in step and we'll have the courage to do it. I want to leave you with some practical application. How? How do we do this? How do we seek to stay centered to make sure that our thoughts, our feelings, our actions are in line with the truth of the gospel? There's no special pill to take. There's no magic formula, but it's actually not that complicated. God has given us what some have called the means of grace for the purpose of centering us on the truth. These means of grace, the word, the body, and the sacraments. And I want to conclude by looking briefly at each of these and showing how they serve to keep us in step. Let's start with the Word of God. Are we students, Christians, are we students of the Word of God? If only Peter had been anchored in the Word of God, he might not have been so easily swayed by James. I want to caution you. And I say this to you as your pastor. If you are not checking what you are hearing from the pulpit with the Word of God, you are in danger. We must be students of the Word of God. We must read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize it, because the GPS coordinates are there. They're here. This is how we set our course. About the body of Christ. Maybe an even harder question. When is the last time someone from Christ Central Church opposed you to your face because you were out of step with the truth of the gospel? When's the last time that happened to you? I just want to say here that I am truly grateful. I truly am when I receive a, a hard email from one of you. I really am. And no doubt sometimes it's hard to hear, but the reason I'm grateful is because I know that the email is coming from a place of hurt. Either I've hurt you, I've said something to hurt you, or the church has hurt you, and that hurt is real. But I'm grateful for the email because you're coming to me and opposing me to my face and not opposing me behind my back. The church is so bad about opposing each other behind our backs. There's a whole sermon right there. But when we're centered on the gospel, we oppose with grace to one's face. And I caution you, if nobody's opposing you to your face, that may not be their problem. That may be your problem. How do you handle criticism? Do you get defensive? Do you get angry? If you're displaying the humility that is necessary, people will feel the freedom to come to you in this way. When I was in seminary, there was a group of us that would gather twice a year. We, we'd talk about time to sharpen one another. And what, we would go one at a time, and there were six of us, and the five other guys would take turns speaking into our life. And they'd say things that were encouraging 
and things that we needed to work on. And what was so fascinating is that the things that we needed to work on, everybody always agreed. But the person normally didn't even know about it. And there's so much truth right there. We're so blind to our brokenness, but everybody knows. Are we willing to invite that into our life? Are we willing to invite people to call us to greater holiness? And the, way, the confidence that we have to do that is knowing that Jesus knows that you're a mess and he loves your messy self. And he's inviting you to grow, to be centered, to walk in step. Lastly, the sacraments. This is the third gift that God has given us to keep us centered. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I think it's, it's sad that the Protestant church in many ways has reacted to Catholicism and has watered down these beautiful gifts. And it's out of fear that uh, people might think that we are looking to the sacraments for salvation, which is clearly not what Paul says in 15 through 21. But we need to recognize that although these gifts cannot save you, these are the gifts that God uses to drive this truth deeper into your hearts. We should come to the table expecting to meet with Jesus and allow the gospel to be planted in our souls. These are good gifts that help keep us centered on faith, on the true gospel. I hope and pray that we as a church avail ourselves of these three gifts often. That we are in the word, that we are connected to the body, and we are enjoying the riches of the sacraments. And by doing so, we can be confident that our alignment is right and that we'll have the courage to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I confess it's so easy for me to get out of step. I'm not, I'm not Paul. I'm Peter. I miss it. And I allow the approval of man or a whole host of other things to, to mess up my alignment, to move me off of this centered faith. I pray for myself and for all of us that we would return to the centered faith, centered on the gospel, so that we can walk in step. God, would you use your word, would you use this body, and would you use the sacraments to feed us, to grow us, and to keep us in step for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.